We have been taking our time for the past couple of weeks to go through the prologue of John's gospel, the first 18 verses of John's gospel. I want us now to reorient ourselves by rereading the entire text. We've come now to the capstone of the text in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 1, which summarizes some of the things that John has already said, amplifies some of the things that John has already said, and then drives home the point in a really powerful and poignant way. So we will concentrate on the last several verses of the prologue, but I want to reread the entire prologue so that we can have some context, and we'll spend some time considering one very brief but summarized point as we look at these verses today. So we are talking today about the incarnation of the Son of God. I've said to you that John's gospel is unique. It's not like Matthew or Luke's gospel where Jesus' birth is narrated to us. It goes back even further than that, but demonstrates to us that the Son of God did become a real man. John looks at the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, a little bit more theologically, a little bit more comprehensively, but he drives home the purpose of Jesus' incarnation, that he became a real man in a powerful way, and the Gospels elsewhere don't exactly do. So John's, John's Gospel is unique in the way that deals with the incarnation of Jesus, and we'll see the summation of that today in verses 14 through 18. So let's now read together in faith God's Word, and may He minister to our hearts. This is the Word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. May God's Spirit bless to us the reading of His Word. Just for the sake of a brief summary, I'm going to put the outline from the past couple of weeks up on the screen so you can make sense of this text. In verse 1, we saw that Jesus is eternally the Son of God and reveals Him to humanity. Verses 2 through 4, we find that God created the world through Jesus and all human life exists and is sustained through Him. And thirdly, in verse 5, we found that Jesus, or just at, as at the creation of all things, Jesus will not allow darkness to have the final word. I said to you, 
the opening of our time together today, that John looks at the incarnation of Jesus, that the Son of God took on flesh and became a man. That's what we mean by incarnation. John looks at this more theologically, more comprehensively. So he says some things that Matthew and Luke don't say in their Gospels. He drives the, the point of the incarnation home in a very profound way. But it's interesting that, that John goes all the way back to sort of pre-existence, before the world came into being, and speaks of the, the identity of the Son, that He was God Himself, and the activity of the Son, that He made the world and He made humanity. He goes on in verses 6 through 8 to say that Jesus is God's ultimate gracious revelation to the world. That is to say, when Jesus took on flesh and really became a man, God had a a purpose behind it, to show Himself to the world. In verses 9 through 13, we found that Jesus is the Redeemer that makes enemies into sons and daughters. Joseph and Mary were told that they would have a son. One of His names would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. The name by which he is more commonly known is Jesus, which means Savior or God saves. And he would be given this name because he would save his people from their sins. And though this is explained in the other Gospels, this is really poignantly driven home in John's Gospel. He wants everyone to know before he unpacks the details of Jesus' life, That the reason he became a man in the first place, the reason he had a human life was so that he could come and and rescue God's enemies and make them into sons and daughters. And then to drive that point home, John comes to verses 14 through 18, and he makes a very simple but profound point. And the point is this, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's gracious promises to reconcile humanity to Himself. This is what verses 14 through 18 are saying to us. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's gracious promises to reconcile humanity to Himself. Behind these verses, behind verses 14 through 18, there is a a scary thought that humanity has been separated from God because of sin. God told Adam and Eve in the garden that if they did not keep the one law that He gave them, that there would be consequences, that they would fall from grace, that they would lose fellowship with Him. And as soon as they sinned, they they realized the consequences. And God came to them and spoke words of cursing that they were separated from Him, that death had come, that the life that they had formerly enjoyed had been lost. The words of cursing extended to the ground. It would be hard now to work the ground, to get their food from it. And the words of cursing extended to their relationships with each other. So their lives began to unravel. And though they did not immediately physically die. They were still drawing breath into their lungs. The synapses of their brains were still firing. Their hearts were still beating blood and 
coursing the blood through the veins of their bodies. Nevertheless, spiritually, they were separated from God. And it is against this backdrop that John writes John chapter 1, and now the capstone of this text, verses 14 through 18. John's point here is that Jesus came into death. Jesus came into the rebellion. Jesus entered into the cursed world. He walked on cursed soil. He lived among cursed people. And He did all of this to remove that curse. Jesus became flesh that He might bring God's grace back to humanity. Jesus invaded the world full of grace to undo the effects of the curse and to restore us to God. This promise of God that had been given thousands of years before because though He spoke words of cursing to Adam and Eve, He likewise, and even more importantly, spoke words of promise. And yet for centuries and millennia, the fulfillment of those promises lingered. There were hints of the promises. There were minor, small fulfillments along the way, but all of those small reminders, all those little partial fulfillments anticipated something greater. And when Jesus took on flesh, becoming a little baby, and entering into this world, it demonstrated that God was doing something marvelous. He was undoing curse. To understand even further the backdrop of this text, we need to look back into the Old Testament. You'll notice here in verses 14 through 18 that Jesus brings God's glory to bear upon humanity. Jesus causes God's light to shine among humanity. If you don't mind, let's turn together to Exodus chapters 33 through 34. I do not want to make this academic today, but if we don't understand this particular text, Exodus chapters 30 through 34, we will, we will not understand John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. So you know some of the context here, and if you don't, I'll paint a brief picture. By the end of Genesis, where we're studying right now, you have about 70 people, Jacob's family, Jacob's other name being Israel. They're a, they're a sizable little clan, but that's all they are. By the time you get to the beginning of Exodus, around 400 years later, they have grown into a relatively sizable nation, but they are under bondage. They are slaves. And this is both physical, they are literally slaves to Egypt's king, Pharaoh, but they are also spiritual slaves. They are, they are in bondage, not understanding God, not enjoying fellowship with Him. They are not in the promised land. They are not realizing the great and precious promises of God. They are, they are slaves in more than one kind of way. God sends a man named Moses that He has prepared to be a leader for the people, to lead them 
out of slavery. He convinces Pharaoh and the Egyptians to let them go through a series of curses, preserving his own people. The final curse being the Passover, where God shows mercy particularly to the people of Israel, but slays all the firstborn of the Egyptians, man and beast alike. It is this final curse upon Egypt that convinces Pharaoh to let them go, that God further hardens Pharaoh's heart. He pursues them to the Red Sea through which the people pass on dry land and which becomes a watery tomb for all of Pharaoh's army because he drowns them in the sea by causing the great waters to crash upon them. God delivers Israel in every way from Egypt's hands. In chapter 20, the Israelites come to a mountain called Mount Sinai where God gives them a covenant. Eventually, as God is giving Moses the covenant, He lingers up on the mountain for quite a while, recording the laws that God intends for the people, laws about how they should treat each other, laws about how they should worship God, even the way that they should erect their their house of worship, initially this thing we call the tabernacle, where God will will encamp with the people and, and His glory will dwell among the people in this tabernacle. While he lingers at the beginning of chapter 32, the people grow impatient, and they want a physical manifestation of their God. So they compel Aaron, Moses' brother, the priest of Israel, to make this idol for them, or at least perhaps a a representation of God. But whether it's a pure idol or just a representation of Yahweh Himself, it breaks God's commandment. And God wants to punish Israel because of their wickedness, because of their faithlessness. In fact, he tells Moses, I'm going to wipe these people out, I'm going to make a new people, and you get to still be their leader. God intercedes for them, or rather, Moses intercedes for them, pleading with God not to do this. God relents, answers Moses' prayer, and is willing to forgive the people. And that brings us to chapter 33. In verse 7, Moses records his actions here. Moses used to take the tent, verse 7, and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. This was before the tabernacle was made. This is, this is Moses' place of hanging out with God. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out of the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses says, verse 12, to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. 
And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, and I in your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people in the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is a mysterious passage. But with the context that I've already told you, you can understand the basic gist of this. Israel is incredibly sinful. They have put their fellowship with God at risk. And God has said to Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. Moses intercedes for them, gets them a reprieve. God says to Moses, you're going to go up now. But Moses says, we can't go up unless you go with us. The Lord says, I'll go. Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, you can't. Because if you see my full glory, you will die. So he hides him in a rock, covers him with his hand, and lets him see, at least in part, what his glory is like. Now, what exactly this means, we don't know. But in some way, God allows himself to take on some sort of shape or form that Moses could at least partially see so he could get a feel of what it was to behold the glory of God. But he could not see God face to face because it would cause him to die. Because despite the fact that Israel was sinful and deserved punishment and wrath, God wanted to relate to them, but they could not relate to Him in His full glory or would cause their undoing. And even Moses himself, who seemingly was not as evil as the rest of the people, he himself was evil. He could not face God face to face. Later on in chapter 34, Moses gets new tablets. The former tablets he had broken in his wrath because he was angry at the people after the calf incident in chapter 32. But the Lord speaks to him again in verse 10 and says, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do to you. In verse 29, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai from getting the next set of tablets the tablets of testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know what the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. In verse 34, Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him. He would remove the veil until he came out. When he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses. The skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This was the effect of being in God's presence. 
Somehow, Moses' own body radiated some of the glory of God. Why do we take time to go back through this somewhat obscure and mysterious Old Testament text? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Back together in John chapter 1, what does John say about Jesus? Jesus is the light of the world. He gave light to the existence of this cosmos. But He is the light of men as well. Not just in creating them, but as we see in verses 14 through 18, in offering them redemption. In Exodus chapters 33 through 34, we find that God is just just in the way that He brings His wrath to bear on humanity. They deserve His wrath because they are sinful. And yet, He wishes to bring His glory to them. And that is why He preserved them in the first place. Israel was preserved by God that they might be a blessing to the world. The problem was they were super evil. They were wicked. But God did not let them go. God continued to preserve His grace toward them. And as He manifested Himself to them, specifically in the person of Moses, there was an effect upon them. His glory should have slain them, should have killed them. And if they had beheld Him perfectly face to face... They would have all died, Moses included. But God showed them mercy. But all this prefigured a later coming, when God's glory would be brought to humanity, not in a partial manifestation of Himself like it was to Moses, but in a full manifestation of Himself. How would He do that? He would do that in the person of His Son. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to be among His people. God was among His people in the tabernacle, and they were incredibly sinful, failing again and again and again. But we see that God's presence was with them despite their sin. But all of this was partial. All of this was awaiting fulfillment. When John says in chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This phrase, dwelt among us, is a translation of a Greek term which means that Jesus came and, and 
pitched his tent among us. It literally means that he tabernacled among us. If you were a first century Jew and you heard that verb form used, your mind would have gone back to the tabernacle. Your mind would have gone back to God's presence among his people. John chose this word on purpose. John chose this phrase to demonstrate that though partially God was among his people in the past, now he was really among them. And though in the past, Moses' very face had to be veiled because it freaked the people out because his face radiated some of the glory of God, now Jesus comes as God himself, the Son of the Father, to be among his people, unveiled, And therefore, with the backdrop against which this text is written, perhaps you can see the profound nature of it. In the past, because of Israel's sin, God would not fully manifest His goodness. If He had, they would have died. But how would He do it? Now, not on tablets of stone, not on a fiery mountain, not through a mediator like Moses, but through His Son. Moses brought the law to humanity. The law was not bad. The law did a few things. The law showed Israel how they should live as a nation. But most importantly, the law showed Israel and all those of us who have read it that we are sinful. But it doesn't just point out our sin. The law prepared us for the coming of the Son of God. I said to you a bit ago that the last of the curses upon Egypt was what we call the Passover. And though the Passover was a curse upon sinful Egypt, the Passover was a reminder of grace and blessing to Israel that He would preserve them. As we partook of the table today, Jesus took the last Passover before His crucifixion with the disciples, changing it demonstrating to them that that all those Passovers for the centuries before had prefigured His coming when He would be the Lamb whose blood was spilled, when He would take their punishment and offer them His grace. Why did Jesus become a man? Why did the Word become flesh? The Word became flesh to come dwell among the cursed, to take away their curse to bring God's light of grace to humanity, something that Moses' law pointed to, but something that Moses' law could not accomplish. Moses' law pointed out sinfulness, but Moses' law could not remedy the sinfulness. Jesus was better than the law. Jesus came as fully human to bring God's glory into humanity, not veiling it, not hiding it, not partial, His full glory. And what was His glory? His glory was His obedience to the Father. His glory was His manifestation of the promises of the Father. His glory was His giving of His life, His grace, that we might receive it. Why did He do all this? He did all of this to take away our curse. That is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In verse 17 of John chapter 1, John says to us that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Why did Moses give us the law? Moses gave us the law to expose our sinfulness and to to anticipate the coming of the Savior who would take away the curse. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to take away our condemnation, to take away the curse. And therefore, verses 14 through 18, demonstrate to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's gracious promises to reconcile humanity to Himself. That's why He took on flesh. That's why He came. Jesus kept all of the law given to Moses. Jesus was the fulfillment of all the anticipation of the law of Moses. And because He came and because He took our curse, we can now turn to Him. And having full relationship with God, we will not be slain condemnation is not the final verdict for us. The final verdict for us is grace. And that is why in verse 16 that John says, from His fullness, from the fullness of Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. A more literal translation of that might be grace instead of grace. What's he mean by that? Well, when God gave the law through Moses, He gave humanity some grace. Grace to understand their sinfulness. Grace to understand that there would come one who would sacrifice himself to take care of that sinfulness. But the law of Moses was only partial. The law of Moses was anticipatory. Anticipating what? Partial fulfillment of what? Anticipating the coming of the Son of God who would give grace Better grace than the law. Full grace. Grace which would reconcile us to the Father. Grace which would allow us to to relate to Him once again. How is this possible? Because of verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Who came to us? God came to us. This is profoundly important because this means that God kept His promises by taking the curse upon Himself. Adam and Eve would not have fully understood this when the promise of redemption was given to them in chapter 3 of Genesis. The people of Israel did not fully understand this when the Passover was first celebrated and then for centuries onward. They did not fully understand this as they read the law of Moses. But the profound nature of the incarnation of the Son of God is that God Himself came. And the only way that the curse would be removed is if He would take the effects of the curse upon Him Himself. And in doing so, He offers to us renewal, reconciliation, 
so that our destiny need not be curse and condemnation, but life. Israel deserved to be cast off because of their sin. But God would not do so. And He gave them a partial promise that one day His glory would fully shine, not just on a localized mountain, not just through tablets of stone, but through flesh. And that's why Jesus became a man, to bring God's glory back to humanity, to take the curse of the law upon Himself, that we need not live under its curse. And brothers and sisters, that's the purpose of Advent, to show us that God the Son became a man to rescue men and women, to take enemies and to reconcile them to God. And therefore, Advent is even more profound than we can possibly explain. Words fail us as we try to explain this. Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is God Himself. And rather than cursing the world, He came and kissed it in love. And He did it in the person of His Son. How do we respond to all this? First, those yet enslaved by sin must trust Jesus. Israel was enslaved not just physically, but by nature. And God was calling them by His grace to trust Him. And the fact that He did not cast them off, but gave them chance after chance after chance, was their opportunity to trust Him and to follow Him. And now that God has given us Jesus, He addresses our slavery. The law tells us that we are sinful, but the law cannot fix us. And try though we might to make ourselves right through God, we cannot be reconciled to Him by our actions. The only one that can reconcile you to God is Jesus Himself. And I say to you today, I plead with you today, that if you have not trusted Jesus, not just believed certain good things about Him, but staked your claim on Him, receiving Him on His terms, trusting Him to be your righteousness, trusting Him to restore you to God, that you might behold Him face to face and not be crushed, I call you today to trust Jesus. He took your curse. He became one of us to give you life that you might go from enemy to son or daughter. Trust Jesus today if you have not. Secondly, we may rest knowing that God's posture toward His children is full of grace. Jesus came to bring us full grace. Jesus came to bring the Father's glory to us. And therefore, you may rest knowing that God's posture towards you is full of grace. How do you know that? Because He gave you Jesus. As you struggle with your sin with guilt and shame, with the fear of what lies ahead, you may rest. You don't know what tomorrow brings, and you won't have strength for it, whatever it brings. But if God loved you enough to give you His Son, to take your curse and to give you His glorious grace, 
you can be at rest. So I call you today, especially in this season, to reflect upon the promises of Advent, knowing that you can rest in Jesus. And thirdly and lastly, and this is practical for the way that we respond to each other, our posture toward others must be marked by the same. And this is a practical outworking of this text. If God loved you enough to send His Son to take your curse, to bring His grace to bear upon humanity, you can be at rest. But it should therefore mean that the way that this community is comprised, that we should rest in that same kind of grace. I've said to you in the past, and I'll say it again today, that we cannot hold people to a higher standard than God holds us to. That is to say, though God requires us to keep His laws... We are not kept because we keep His laws. That is to say, we are not children of God because we keep His laws. We are children of God because He has made us His own, and He's done this through Jesus. And though He requires us to keep His laws, though He expects us to keep His laws, though He rescued us so that we could keep His laws, that is not how we maintain sonship. And therefore, we will fail each other as well. But how do we treat each other whenever there is failure? How do we treat each other when there is offense? We should do so with a posture of grace toward each other as well. This means that in Jesus, God can both punish sin and offer grace. That means in a community like ours, we can take sin seriously and still demonstrate grace to one another. And so in this Advent season, we are reminded that the Son of God became flesh, became incarnate to deal with our sin and to restore us to God. And therefore, we may be at peace with Him, we may be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, now, for the glory of Jesus and for the good of Your children, I pray that you will take these truths, that you will implant them into our minds and into our hearts, that we will understand the cursed effects of sin, but that Jesus undid these effects by becoming a man and taking the curse for us and giving us His grace. So we thank you that we can behold you face to face in the person of Jesus and not be slain, not be condemned, not suffer your wrath. We thank you, Jesus, that you took the wrath for us. You took the curse for us. You took the condemnation for us. And therefore, rather than facing condemnation, we can have full relationship with God face to face. So thank you, Jesus, for taking our place, for offering us grace. I pray that you will help us to rest in this grace and help us to extend it toward other people. Father, thank you for sending us your Son. May we live in gratitude and obedience, trusting in Him every single day. We pray these things in His name.